Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being in our midst. Thank you for being our Redeemer, our God, our Savior, and our Teacher. We come now, Lord, before you and ask that you would teach us your word, that you would grant us understanding through your Spirit, that you fill us with the desire to obey and to follow you. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, as today we begin a, a message on fasting, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that in my hand, I have an upside-down top hat. Ordinary upside-down top hat. Now watch as I take three pieces of paper. On the first paper, I write almsgiving. On the second paper, I write giving or prayer. And the third one I write fasting. So I take these pieces of paper and I put them in the top hat very carefully, each paper. Now imagine I take this top hat and I come down to where you are sitting and I say, I want you to close your eyes, put your hand in the top hat and pull out a piece of paper. Whatever you draw out, that will be your spiritual discipline activity for the week or for the day. Now be honest, which paper would you want to draw out? Which activity would you prefer to do? Giving to charity, prayer, or fasting? Most of us, I think, would prefer giving to charity or praying. Far less, I think, would be really, really hoping the paper says fasting. It may be as you place your hand in the hat that you're saying, actually, please, please not fasting. Let it be prayer. Let it be giving. For most of us, we find almsgiving and prayer far easier and more palatable than, than we do fasting. Giving some money or time to church or helping the needs in our world can be gratifying and can be a blessing to the recipients. Connecting with our Father in prayer can be an amazing, rich experience as He draws us closer to Himself and as we offer supplications. But fasting, somehow in our day, fasting seems to have fallen into the category of optional. Well, you can do it or you can't do it. It's optional. Giving in prayer, we don't consider those optional. They're part of the Christian life. You see, fasting can be seen as something for the super committed, for those who are the more hardcore Christians. Some may even say that fasting is a bit too radical. It's a bit too radical to not eat. We may think to ourselves, is fasting even necessary today? Is it even important for modern day followers of Christ? Well, unlike my top hat illustration, this isn't so much about whether we give or pray or fast. It's really about our hearts obeying our Lord and our Savior. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, which we started quite a while ago, it seems, Jesus has been calling us, his people, you and I, as his disciples, to a life of righteousness. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus proclaimed that our righteousness must surpass those of the scribes and Pharisees. 
in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus instructs us that this righteousness is to be practiced for God the Father and only for God the Father, whether we give, pray, or fast. Now, by now, we've seen a familiar pattern in Jesus' teaching on these issues. The same structure reappears as we come to the text on fasting. You see, and this is important, the act of fasting is of less importance to God than our reasons for fasting. As we turn to Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18, we see again that our Lord starts with something. He starts with an assumption. He makes an assumption because he says, and when you fast. As with almsgiving and prayer, in verse 16, fasting is something that Jesus assumes his audience is doing. So this is not a call or a challenge to fast. Nor does Jesus teach us how to fast, as he did last week in verses 9 to 13, where he gave us a template through which we can approach our Father. No, he just assumes everybody knows what fasting is, and he assumes that we're involved in fasting, because it's an expected activity. So before we go further, let's define what fasting is. Now, most of us are familiar with fasting, particularly before a medical test. Oh, you're getting a blood test, you have to fast. 12 hours, oh, that's difficult. 24 hours, longer. You're having an operation, you have to fast. We understand that. Some fast because they want to lose weight and they want to diet. Some fast because they're grieving and they have no appetite. Some of us skip a meal. We skip breakfast or lunch because we're too busy or caught up in an activity that is too important, too urgent, and is more important at that moment than eating. But that is not an intentional fast. Now, the fasting we're talking about this morning is a spiritual fast. It's fasting for spiritual reasons. And I'm going to draw upon a definition provided by Martin Lloyd-Jones, where he describes spiritual fasting in this way. Fasting means an abstinence from food for the sake of special purposes, such as prayer or meditation or seeking God for some peculiar reason or under some exceptional circumstance. So to simplify his definition, I've written in this way. Spiritual fasting is an abstinence from something. It's usually food. And it is an abstinence for someone. And that's the one he's talking about. Who are we fasting for? Who are we abstaining from food on behalf of? So Jesus begins in verse 16 by simply assuming that his listeners know about spiritual fasting. This was not some foreign or strange activity. Certainly, his first century audience, Jewish audience, were not only aware, but they were engaged in fasting at least one time every year. There was one fast every year that they had to be involved in because God had commanded one fast that for all the nation would have to spend that day fasting. And this was known as the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. 
in Leviticus 16. Leviticus, uh, many places is mentioned. But I'll read Leviticus 16, 29 to 31, where God says, This is to be a lasting command. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves. You must fast and do no work, whether native-born or foreigner residing among you. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of the Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves or fast. It's a lasting command. The purpose here in Leviticus was for the people as a nation to collectively fast together in mourning and in repentance for their sin, looking for reconciliation, which God provided through sacrifice. Jewish scribal law, as it always does, seems to expand this. And they wanted to itemize what was forbidden. See if this sounds familiar when you think about the passage that Jesus is presenting to us this morning. It is forbidden, or we should abstain from, food, drink, bathing, anointing yourself, wearing sandals, or indulging in conjugal intercourse. Such practice was deemed the means by which you could demonstrate that you were fasting, mourning, and being in a state of repentance. Now, in all of Scripture, God only commands one fast. That's the only one. But there are other fasts that emerged, Jewish traditional fasts, such as a fast that was initiated when Jerusalem was first attacked in 2 Kings 25. Oh, when Jerusalem fell in 2 Kings 25 as well. Or when the temple was destroyed, they had a, a fast. In each case, fasting was accompanied by mourning and repentance. But you may say, well, didn't people fast in the Old Testament? Yes, they did. It's a personal and special fasts. Fasting was often in response to a crisis or a tragedy as people turned to God. You may remember Esther. Queen Esther called for a fast for three days and three, uh, three days. No food, no water for the people and for her because they were facing imminent destruction. Now, I would be very cautious if you're going to fast for three days without food or water. Water is essential to us. David fasted before God as he pleaded for the life of his ill firstborn son with Bathsheba. Nehemiah, when he heard the news of the exiles and desecration of Jerusalem, he fell to his knees and he wept and mourned, fasted and prayed. Even the city of Nineveh, no believers, they went into fasting and mourning. Even to the animals couldn't eat when they heard Jonah's preaching because they wanted to avert God's judgment. However, the key text in all the Old Testament for fasting, and I want to think that Jesus is referring to in our passage today, is found in Isaiah 58. There's a lot of verses in this passage. I'm going to read them. You're welcome to turn to Isaiah 58 in your Bibles or your devices and follow along. But as we go along in Isaiah 58, think about what was read earlier in Matthew 6, 16 to 18, because there are some similarities that are going on. The first two verses can be described as God's complaint. He's talking to Isaiah, 
And he says, cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And the people respond with a complaint, with an accusation of their own. Why have we fasted and you see it not? We have humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. What's the point, God? We've been fasting and you don't take notice of it. And so God gives an assessment of their fasting in verses 3 and 5 of Isaiah 58. He says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? You're not fasting for God. And so God says, this is what I require. When you fast, this is what I want to see. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring, your home, bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You see, true fasting is not just absence from food. It also should result in doing righteousness and seeking justice. And God concludes this by saying, here is my reward. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke of your, of your, from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you should be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So, what's happening here? God declares to the nation of Israel that fasting must not only seek him, but it must also seek his glory, and his will. So he declares that fasting should be accompanied by godly living, as seen in justice, in verse 6, and compassion, in verse 7, and that he will respond to the cries of those whose motivation in fasting is for his purposes. But God repeats this lesson later on in Zechariah, chapter 7, when he says, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh month, for these 70 years, was it me you fasted? Now Jesus echoes 
I think, these words in the New Testament. So this should sound familiar to you. Because Jesus, I believe, is summarizing these texts. His audience would know Isaiah 58. And Jesus addresses the same type of pretender or hypocrite who fasted for themselves or others, but not for God. Even if they believed they were fasting for God, when in fact they weren't. Even if they thought they were doing all the things they were supposed to do on the exterior, but their heart was not fasting for God. They may even have complained to God that he wasn't responding to them. So Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. There's fasting in the Old Testament, there's fasting in the New Testament. We know that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting before he met the temptations of God's enemy. Likewise, in the early church, we see Paul fasting for three days without food or water as he waited for God's deliverance. We see the early church leaders of the church of Antioch fasting and praying and then the Holy Spirit interrupting their, their prayer meeting, telling them to appoint Barnabas and Paul and separate them for missions. J. Oswald Chambers says it this way. A study of relevant New Testament scriptures reveals that fasting was a matter in which there was liberty. There was not a premeditated or prearranged exercise. It was usually the spontaneous outcome of some deep spiritual concern, which made eating a matter of secondary importance, or was an expression of a yearning for a closer walk with God. So we find different types of fasts. People fasting for a day, half day, skipping a meal, some fasting for three days, seven days, some longer periods. One could even say that fasting and prayer are united as one activity, for you seldom see one without the other. But again, the act of fasting is not under scrutiny by Jesus here. It is rather the motives for fasting that Jesus addresses. So, for whom are we fasting? Well, there's an audience here. Jesus has an assumption we're fasting and he has an audience that we're fasting before. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fast may be seen by others. In Luke 18:12, there was a Pharisee who went to pray. And as he was praying, he noticed uh, a sinner was also praying at the synagogue. And it's a well-known story where the Pharisee is praying to God, and he points out to God that he fasts twice a week. It was customary for the Pharisees and the scribes to fast twice a week, usually on Mondays and Thursdays, because these were market days. People would be drawn from all over the countryside to come in to the market to buy for their provisions. What a great way to show your fasting before people, because they're all going to be there. So on these days, you could openly show public fasting, or prayer, or giving, and people would know that you're doing it and see your piety. But I think Jesus actually has a couple of audiences in mind. It's not just the crowds that these people were praying before. It was also for themselves. They were praying for themselves. They were fasting for themselves. The crowds would notice pious acts of fasting 
based upon appearance, a gloomy and disfigured face. So a person's fast is not smiling. They're, they're really they're depressed. They're somber. If you've ever fasted and uh, you're not used to it, it's not pleasant sometimes. Your face can be kind of somber. People in mourning who are not eating have ashen white faces. They don't care how they dress because it's unimportant. So to emphasize fasting, the pretenders or hypocrites would artificially whiten their faces to look a little more pale. Unwashed and wearing tattered and torn clothing would be clear signs indicating that they were fasting and the people would take note of their outward piety. And so this person is fasting, not just the crowd, he's fasting for himself, for the appearance of piety and holiness. But that was more important, it seemed, than being holy and righteous. So we have this fellow here. He's wearing sackcloth, and he's kneeling, and we, let's, say, let's just say he's fasting and praying. And he's doing it in the square. He's before God, and no one's around. But if we look at a different angle, we see this. Now, we don't know if his heart's motivation was to fast for the photographers or for God. We can't make that judgment. But certainly the temptation to do that for public notoriety would be present. A modern example, perhaps, of somebody who is doing this for the sake of getting attention for a news article of some kind. Maybe he's an actor. We don't know. But I put the picture there so you can visually see what it may look like. A person wearing sackcloth, having ashes. It's obvious he's not out to go to the restaurant or to the cinema. He's there to seek God publicly. But there's a third person in this audience. You can't see him, but he's there. He's also here right now, but you can't see him. And this is God the Father. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Anoint your head and wash your face were normal everyday activities. I see that most of you here have anointed yourself quite well today. Yeah, you will look, uh, look sharp. But this was not to become some special anointing or overdressing, which could lead to another form of hypocrisy that tells people you're fasting. You know, someone, could, uh, someone could say, oh, oh, look. You know, he always wears that special dress shirt when he's fasting. I bet she's fasting today. Or, or look, that shade of lipstick she always wears when she's fasting. She never wears that unless she's fasting. Or the special hair gel you're wearing for the 30-hour 30 uh, 30, uh, 30 famine. Yeah, these guys are fasting. Well, that would be a different form of hypocrisy because you're announcing what you're doing by how you appear. But there is yet another danger which, we can, which can associate fasting with the means to which you receive blessing. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, whom I'm depending upon in part of this message, he says it this way. He says, some people say, if you want a blessing, fast. If you want to be healed, you should fast. If you want this or that, a job or whatever, you should be fasting. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that seems to me to be a most dangerous doctrine. We must never speak like that about anything in the spiritual life. These blessings are never automatic. The moment we begin to say, 
because I do this, I get that. It means that we are, con- are controlling the blessing. That is to insult God and to violate the great doctrine of his final and ultimate sovereignty. No, we must never advocate fasting as a means of blessing. We should never advocate or indulge or practice in fasting as a method or means to obtain direct blessing. The value of fasting is indirect, not direct. The point is to appear and behave as you normally do, so that God sees your fasting. Now Jesus finishes with the idea of reward. He did this before in almsgiving and in prayer. We don't fast for what we can get, as in the attitude which is part of our culture today. Okay, what's in it for me? Why should I bother fasting? What's in it for me? What do I get out of this? That is not the attitude of which we approach God with anything. We fast because we seek God the Father, and Jesus tells us the Father will respond. Now, I want you to notice, it was pointed out before, but I'll emphasize it again, that Jesus here has a a kind of play on words as he discusses verse 18. He says, God the Father, who you cannot see, you can't see him, he sees what you do in secret that others cannot see. In other words, when you fast in secret, in private, people cannot see or know what you're doing. And so there's no one to recognize or notice your sacrifices. However, God the Father, who no one can see, is the only one in the audience who does see what you're doing. You could be fasting today, right now. Nobody knows that. Only God. Well, he sees what you're doing. And Jesus says something else is happening here as well. Beyond the Father just seeing you. Yeah, the Father sees. But Jesus says something else is happening. He says the Father will reward you. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, what is this reward or rewards? Well, it is not something that we earn or deserve. It is not a payment or a prize. It is something entirely different. And when I've thought about this, and I said, okay, Lord, if I'm going to fast, what reward do I seek in you? And he pointed out two things. And there's many rewards, potentially, in fasting, but I'll mention two that come to mind. And the first is, the Father shows you your heart. He shows you what's inside of you. And if I sum up the whole message, I'll summarize it in this phrase. We do not fast to move God, but instead for God to move us. That's why we're fasting, for him to change us, not for us to change him. Richard Foster wrote it this way, Fasting reveals the things that control us. Food and other good things in life can mask our true hunger and need for God as we float along in life. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they're within us, they will surface during fasting. At first we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger, and then we will know that our anger is because we have a spirit of anger within us. You see, I believe that fasting is a means to which God 
can show us what is our deepest appetites and desires, which can, if left unchecked, become idols in our lives. They can become between us and God. God enables us to learn that we do not live for our appetites, whether they be physical, for food, emotional, for friends, for social media, or material. Fasting assists us in opening up our lives to the Spirit. As we abstain from our needs and desires, physically, coming away from the world for a moment, for a time, so that we can focus on the spiritual aspects of life. So we're saying to God, I give up the necessity of food at this moment because I desire you more. I want to be in your presence more than I want to eat. You are more necessary to my life than food or my cell phone or my special program on television. Believe me, this is a great reward that God provides. To know what is in your hearts and then to see how God is the only one who can fill your heart's need is an insight that only God can provide. As we make God our priority, even more important than our daily food, he leads us into his presence. And we've already learned earlier what Jesus has taught, because the Sermon on the Mount is one sermon, Matthew 5 and Matthew 7. Although we preach small portions of it, it's all connected, interconnected. See if this sounds familiar. Blessed are flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who are fasting for righteousness. They're hungry, they're thirsty for it. And Jesus says the reward is what? You'll be satisfied. They will receive the righteousness that comes only in Christ. What a reward. Or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Fasting, mourning, repentance, all before God leads to the Father's compassion. It brings us to the place to receive the compassion he wants to pour upon us. Donald S. Whitney writes, like all spiritual disciplines, fasting hoists the sails of the soul in hopes of experiencing the gracious wind of God's spirit. But fasting also adds a unique dimension to your spiritual life and helps you grow in Christ-likeness in ways that are unavailable through any other means. If this were not so, there would have been no need for Jesus to model and teach fasting. God not only rewards us by showing us our heart's need for him, but he also does something else, even more profound. The Father shows you his heart. When you step from the world and you say, I'm putting the world aside, I'm going to go in a prayer closet, I'm going to be away from the world, I'm going to pray, I'm going to fast, I'm going to seek only him, God shows you his heart. From Isaiah 58, in response to God-centered fasting, God says this, Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. And the Lord will guide you continually. The Father's love and grace becomes magnified as we deny ourselves physical sustenance for the sole purpose to focus our minds and souls on him. And so we're led by the Father to a greater closeness to him. God the Father draws us closer to himself away from earthly desires and appetites. He leads us into a time of deeper worship and fellowship. 
God the Father leads us to be with him in worship, to enjoy his presence without the distractions of things around us, as we commune and rest in his presence, even as we draw sustenance from himself, from his word. And he allows us to see his will developed in our lives in a deeper way. Wasn't that part of Jesus' model prayer? Where we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, as we're fasting, we're praying for God's will to be done in our lives as he desires. This is why I believe that Jesus talked about prayer before fasting. Why he expanded that teaching so that with fasting, you bring prayer. As our bodies join our spirits to come before him. These are among the rewards I think God pours out in his grace upon us. Remember, fasting does not produce these rewards. Fasting places in a places us in a position with which or from which we can receive what God chooses to provide for us. So, what happens now? The practice of fasting. Jesus continually teaches us that our only motivation for spiritual fasting is to seek God. It is not to demonstrate our spirituality. It is not to impress others or to make us feel superior. Well, look, you know, uh, you don't know it, but I'm, uh, I've been fasting uh, three days this week. You know, it's not the point. If that's what your, th- your thought is, that's your reward. Good for you. That's, but God has much more than that. And that's what he wants us and longs for us to, to achieve. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, uh, Jones again says, it should always be regarded that his fasting should always be regarded as a means to an end, not as an end in itself. It is something that a man, a woman, should do only when he feels or she feels impelled or led to it by spiritual reasons. It is not to be done because a certain section of the church does it or done during Lent. We're in the middle of Lent right now. This is the third Sunday of Lent. We don't do it at any other time because others are doing it. We do it because God is impressing upon us that he wants to draw us close for a purpose. I'll leave you with a few final thoughts. Before you fast, if you think, you know, I, I, should, I should be fasting. Before you enter fasting, make sure that your health permits you to do that. If there's any question, talk to your physician. Make sure that uh, you're not harming yourself physically. The second thing is to be open to the Spirit's guidance. Let God tell you when and where and how and for how long you should be fasting. If you've never fasted before, there could be some physical discomfort, such as having a headache, especially if you love your coffee or your sugary sweets and your stomach is saying, like a small baby, feed me, feed me, and you're saying no, and it says, okay, I'm going to get you back, I'm going to give you a headache. It goes away after a while. But it's physical discomfort. We fast for God. In prayer, check your motives before you fast and then seek him in prayer. There was one occasion in my life when I thought I was going to fast and pray for God's guidance. So I started fasting and God said to me, you should stop fasting because you're not seeking me. You're seeking what you want from me. So I did. I stopped fasting. We check our motives before we engage in these activities. We submit our appetites to God. This may not just be food. It may mean during a fast that God desires you to put away your cell phone, to abstain from social media or entertainment, 
during a fast. These can only be distractions sometimes, taking you away from the very purpose of why you're trying to seek God. And lastly, you should be expectant that the Father will draw you closer to himself. You fast for God, expectant that he will respond. And one final comment that goes beyond fasting. The wider implication of Christ's teaching is that we measure our motives and intentions before God as we pursue righteousness in him. So whether we worship here on a Sunday morning, whether you're at home worshiping in private, whether you give, pray, or fast, the central principle is that we do everything with our hearts centered on God the Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the fact that um, you are the center of our lives, that you've made it possible that we can come to you and worship you, that you've made it possible, Lord, to, to speak to our hearts because you've made us new creations by placing your spirit in us so we can hear your voice, we can hear your leading, we can know when you're directing us. Jesus, I pray that uh, you would emphasize today and throughout this week and whatever we do, that, that we would do it for you. Whether we pray, give, or fast, that you would be our center focus, Lord, in all things. Amen. Go now in the freedom of the gospel of Christ. Set before him, set him before you in all your ways. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. Amen.